This week on the 10-8 Podcast, Law Enforcement Saved My Life with Isaac Aziana. He, he changed my life. A lot of my love and respect for law enforcement started with him. I did the NFL thing. But with that comes a lot of mental health and psyche issues. The decisions that I made that have consequences and they affect more people than myself. My senior year, I didn't want to play. I was going through a lot of burnout. I was kind of having almost an identity crisis. I never really had a life outside of football. If I didn't have my wife, um, I'm afraid of what would have happened to me. Not a lot of people really care. It changed my life forever. Excuse my language, but it was absolute dog shit. The burnout had caught up. My mental health was in the dumps. And like that next morning, I remember sitting in the parking lot and I was crying. The mental, physical exhaustion taking its toll. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to episode 315 of the 108 podcast. Today's episode is Law Enforcement Saved My Life. And my guest tonight is Utah police officer and alumnus of the University of Utah and the National Football League, Isaac Asiata. What's going on, everybody? Today's episode is something special. One of my favorite conversations I've had in the whole two-plus years I've been doing this podcast. Absolutely an amazing fella and an amazing story. But first, let's go ahead and get the business out of the way. Listen, it's no surprise to anyone that law enforcement agencies suck at getting the word out to their citizens they serve. Whether it's debriefing a critical incident or educating the public about various aspects of law enforcement, it takes a special skill set that too many in law enforcement don't have. In this ever-changing world of social media, do you, your agency, and your community a favor and check out TOC Public Relations, a company ran by former law enforcement to help you get your message out in an appropriate and professional way. Check them out on social media as well as TOCPublicRelations.com. Let me tell you something you already know. Living a life in public service is a life of sacrifice, but you cannot serve the community or back your partner up if you're not physically able to do so. According to a report by the Wall Street Journal, more than 40% of law enforcement officers are obese. Other studies have found that police officers are 25% more likely to die from weight-related disorders like cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, and even some cancers. Why continue to be a liability to your partners, your loved ones, your community, and yourself? Contact the folks at fit.responders and get your fight back. This episode is also brought to you by my new friends over at RTI Training, giving the type of training that incorporates humor and knowledge that cops respond to. Listen, we all know that you will never retain anything thanks to death by PowerPoint. So do yourself a favor and check out the new kids on the block when it comes to police training. They are revelationstraining.com. And guys, I also want to tell you about our sponsor, Jiu-Jitsu 5.0. They just came out with the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app. It is the ultimate training tool for all law enforcement. Members of the app get on-demand access to a huge library of techniques for the streets, grappling-based workouts, yoga, and a monthly nutrition plan. They also have 24-hour, 7-day-a-week access to Jason, the founder of Jiu-Jitsu 5.0, for personalized training assistance. So... Go to the app store of your choosing and download the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app today. It's available for Android as well as Apple, so get on it now. And last but not least, this episode is brought to you by Thin Vine Wines. Thin Vine Wines is a mission-driven wine company that proudly backs first responders and the military. With a background in law enforcement, their support for police, dispatch, fire, and the military is unwavering. 
Thin Vine Wines donates $2 from every bottle sold to law enforcement and military-driven nonprofits. Making awesome wine is the vehicle. Making wine with a purpose is the mission. Check out their social medias at Thin Vine Wines on Instagram and Facebook and order online at thinvine.wine using the code 10-8-T-E-N, the number 8, for $10 off two or more bottles of wine. And once again, a very special thank you to my sponsors for continuing to support the show to continue to support me. This episode, folks, like I said, is very special. First off, I'm so thankful and grateful for Isaac for sharing his story. But more so, I'm thankful and flat out I'm in awe about how his story parallels with my own personal story and leaving law enforcement. In this conversation, we are going to talk about how Isaac, who at one point was the football guy, uh, went from NFL offensive lineman to police officer. We are also going to talk about my own personal struggles with burnout at the end of the episode, only after you hear Isaac's story so I can talk about them side by side. But before we get there, I want to talk about professional identity crisis. Last year, episode 2 by 2 2 2 2 uh, 2 2 was uh, with Jenna Romano, a good friend of mine, and we talk about this exactly. Actually, Identity Crisis is the name of the episode. And I remember putting that episode together literally as I'm having my own personal struggles, my own personal battles with my identity, with leaving law enforcement. Ultimately, I decided to end my career in law enforcement as I was making this episode, as I was putting it together. So let's talk about how someone gets to that point. As I've talked about in the past several months, shit, almost a year at this point, uh, many factors go into that. In this episode, we're going to talk about how Isaac found solace in law enforcement after his career in the NFL, but it had a very similar trajectory, and that's what makes this conversation so special. So where does this identity crisis come from? It all starts when you put too much of yourself into your profession, and it's very easy to do so. I know I talk about it a lot, don't let the job become your personal identity, but it's very easy easy to do so. Let's break it down. We spend at minimum 40 hours per week at work. That's 40 hours of 168 hours in the week at work. So 168 minus 40 is 128 hours. That's how much you got left. Now let's be generous and assume that you sleep eight hours per day of that week. So 8 times 7 equals 56. Subtract those 56 hours from 128. You're left with 72 hours. Divide that into the week. That gives us 10 hours per day at home with our family doing other things. But that doesn't take into account overtime, training, on-call, mandates, and anything else you want to do with your life. It's understandable that the job becomes attached to your sense of identity because you just do it so damn much. Now, this is nothing new. Back in the old days, family surnames, like your last name, were typically brought on by either relation, aka if you were John's son, your family name may be Johnson, Johnson, or by what you did for a living. That's where we have last names like the Smiths, the Millers, the Bakers, the Fishers. If you never knew that, you never realized it, that was just like a major light bulb moment, and I'm glad I could experience that with you. So when you introduce yourself to a new group of people, how long until you bring up the fact that you're a cop? or if you're not a cop and you're listening, or a teacher, a nurse, a dispatcher. You know who you are, you know what you are, but do you know why you do it? And do you know what you would do if you were no longer able to do that as an option? What if you woke up tomorrow and you could no longer be a cop, a teacher, a nurse, or a dispatcher, or whatever? I understand it because I've been there. I've talked to others that have felt the exact same way, and let me be frank, that despair is not good. 
it truly leaves you feeling with this sense of loss, like you just lost a friend or like you just lost yourself. I was able to overcome this and I, I was able to open my eyes and understand that your job is not your personality trait. And I did not do it by myself. I had a lot of struggles with this and just a little plug, therapy is an amazing tool. This job, right, law enforcement, don't get me wrong, is amazing. And it is a calling in the regard that any normal Joe Blow cannot and will not do what we do. But it is still a job and it is still time to reclaim what brought you there in the first place. Whenever I point these things out, right, and I start ranting about them, I never wanted to seem like I'm ushering people just to walk away from the job because I'd never do that. My love for the career and those that do it is at a high, right? So I'm never telling people leave law enforcement. But because I love and care about the people in the job so much, I want to bring it to your attention that you are so much more to this world, to your family, and to yourself than what you do for a living. Those hours we find ourselves at work are unavoidable. But who we are after work are those that we need to make the most out of. Now, I can already hear the naysayers. This is not a career fulfillment TED Talk or anything like that. But as has been my theme continuously, it's about making the most out of your life so you never look at your existence without your job and question your own significance. So how do we break this identity crisis? Look at yourself and ask yourself these questions. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And if money wasn't an option? What's stopping you? What brings you joy? Who do you enjoy spending time with? What accomplishments have I achieved? And what about them is the most meaningful to me? What skills do I have that transcends my job? Who do I enjoy regularly interacting with at work? Of the people I enjoy interacting with, what is it about them that make those interactions so memorable? What are my priorities and what is important to me? And under what conditions do I perform my best work? Socrates says, to know thyself is the beginning of wisdom. Think about those things. Again, it's great to have pride in what you do. And you're going to hear this transition with Isaac in just a moment, how he went from being the football guy to not wanting to be the football guy and the despair that went with him. So check it out, sit back and listen to this amazing story about how law enforcement saved his life. Welcome my guest, Isaac Asiata on the 10-8 podcast. Right, we are here, and we've got Isaac Asiata, right? That's how, that's how you say it? Asiata. Asiata. My bad, my bad. But what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm good, man. Uh, my family's asleep, so I'm sitting in my squad car, because that's why it's so dark. Okay, but okay. Hey, I appreciate the sacrifice of you being outside right now and uh, and taking some time to chat with me. Oh, good, bro. Anytime. I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. You know, you've got a very interesting story, and... As I progress on this, you know, online journey and meeting different police officers throughout the country, I find I found a lot of people with similar stories uh, as yours. 
I've, I've talked to um, a couple other NFL alums that have made the switch. I think I've, I haven't talked to him yet, but I've also talked to a guy that was in the in Major League Baseball who's now a police officer, stuff like that. So it's an interesting story. You know, it's 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 not one that many people would expect that path. So before we, you know, go too far down that, um, I'm going to let you go ahead, introduce yourself, tell people who you are, where you're from, what you do, and we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah, man. So I'm, like you said, I'm Isaac Asiata. Uh, I've been uh, in law enforcement for three years, uh, based out of Utah. Um, I'm, I'm at my second department now uh, in Harriman. I used to be with Provo PD, uh, great police department. was very interested in what Harriman had to offer me, so I made the jump and uh, grateful to be able to be there. We have a great chief, great staff, everybody in that city. Uh, the city department is great. And so, uh, yeah, I've been uh, coming up on three years. I'll be going to be an SRO at a high school next month. And yeah, that's been my career so far. I've been on patrol for three years. Uh, I've been just learning a lot, waiting to get into schools. And I'm glad that I'll be able to go be an SRO. That's really one of the big reasons why I became a cop is I wanted mm-hmm. to be an SRO and go to schools. And I had a really great SRO growing up that kind of changed my perspective on what police and, uh, you know, police uh, officers are. And Prior to that, I did the NFL thing. I mean, I played um, college ball at the University of Utah. I got drafted in the fifth round to the Miami Dolphins, spent two years there, and then uh, did a year with uh, Buffalo Bills and retired to become a police officer. So, Okay. Um, so we're going to take that whole story and flesh it out a little bit. Um, yeah. So you said that your SRO growing up, impacted the way that you saw law enforcement how did that happen what what was your opinion of well first off where'd you grow up dude we moved probably like 20 different times uh from when i was in elementary school until i was in high school we settled down well junior high uh we settled down in a city called spanish fork when i was in middle school but i really like i I spent a lot of time um in a lot of rough neighborhoods like in glendale out in west valley here in utah the people who are familiar with the area it's uh Back then, there was a lot of gangs. They had a gang task force that really recoded everybody. But yeah, well, I grew up around gangs. Now, the family that with my uh, cousins that we lived with at the time, they were running in a crip gang, and um, that was kind of what I—that was my perspective on cops. You know, whatever my cousins and my family was saying about cops was, you know, cops are racist and that they hate. Uh, colored people and that they're just trying to make your life hard. And so, you know, just like every other kid growing up with that's your environment that's all you ever think about um so really didn't care for cops until i went to high school i had a great sro his name was zach adams if you're watching this i love you zach but he he changed my life dude he he really changed my perspective on what the care and the important pack uh the important impact that you know somebody in law enforcement can have on kids who are troubled i used to get in fights and when i was um committed to go play football for the university of utah still getting in trouble um and i i I grew up in a single family home with six kids uh, just my mom and and us kids and was in trouble a lot and you know my my sro uh, zach he was kind of like a father figure uh, just guiding me through you know i all i ever was was the big kid who got in trouble and got into fights and you know he he really hit me with a lot of reality of you know, what my mom has done for me to prepare me to get me to this point where uh, up until that point, you know, my mom always told us that we'd never go to school. She wouldn't be able to afford it unless we got scholarships. Um, and I was able to get one for football. And, you know, he spent a lot of time just hammering into my head that, you know, 
everything that my mom did for me would be would have been from not if I didn't take care of, you know, off the field issues. Um, a lot of my love and respect for law enforcement started with him and I uh, just grew over the years. So. And now when you said you were getting in trouble as a kid, what were you getting in trouble for? I was just getting into a lot of fights. Jeez, man, I don't know. I never, <laughs> I never got caught, but you know, just your typical vandalism, got, trashing yeah. people stuff i wasn't you know i wasn't ever really heavy into drugs uh, was it anything that would get or compromise your scholarship yeah yeah a lot of it just i was getting into a lot of like petty fights with kids in school and like assaults and um never got charged but um i i almost got in a big fight with a kid who uh, went to a rival school and i remember he put me in a squad car and drove me home after they broke that up and Oh man, he bitched me out for the whole car ride home and, and told me that I was an idiot because I was throwing my whole life away over some kid and really, really drove into my head that like the decisions that I made, they have consequences and they affect more people than myself. You know, my mom had done so much for me because she's an immigrant from Samoa and uh, she moved us here to Utah. We used to, I was born in San Francisco. We lived in a really, really ghetto part of San Francisco with a lot of, a lot more gangs and gang violence and drugs. And my mom, didn't want that for us. You know, she moved us out here to Utah is a lot safer and a lot nicer place just to try to give us every opportunity. And, um, you know, he really pounded in my head that like, I'm basically spitting my mom's face by trying to squander that opportunity that I had to do better than my mom did and to take advantage of the opportunities that she gave me. Right. And essentially doing it over nothing, you know, like the stuff that obviously had no weight on anything. Now for everyone that doesn't know, including myself, when you commit to a school, to play, you know, D one ball. What, what does that entail? Like how, how strict, not, not when you get on, you know, when you get to the campus, but in that time leading up, like how strict are they about your behavior, about your grades, everything? Like how quickly can they take that away from you? They can take that away for any reason. Uh, if you're getting in trouble with law enforcement or if you're, you know, if, if you're schooling and your grades aren't doing great, they can pull it right from under you. There's no like guarantees, you know, it's just, they offered me the opportunity. It's just like if you were to take a conditional offer with a, any police department, you know, if you, they, they don't do a background check. It's not as extensive as uh, when you apply to be a police officer, but you know, they do a lot of due diligence to make sure that you're, you know, a person of high character and that you're making the grades, you're performing on the field, you're performing off the field, you're staying out of trouble. <laughs> You know, if they feel at any time that you're not living up to that commitment, you know, they'll pull it right from from under you. Right. So you're always possibly facing that. So after you graduated, um, obviously, you know, you kept your nose clean to the extent of you got to graduate. You got to go to school. You went to you said University of Utah. Yep. And so you played ball there. What was that like? What was what was that experience for you there? Uh, It was great, man. Um, I loved it. I I stayed in state because my mom wouldn't be able to afford to go anywhere else. But there's a legacy. My cousin, Matt Asiata, he played there before me, and he ended up going playing for the Vikings for seven years. But he was like a household name, that last name, uh, that Asiata household name. Uh, it carried a lot of weight. Uh, I remember I talked to him before I even got up there, and even when I got there, that he talked about the legacy of, you know, he did so many great things. Um, and for me to, to basically carry that on, um, carry that name on and, and make it a respectable one to keep it a household name, you know? And so I took that personally and, um, you know, worked really hard and, you know, I had a great, great career there. Mm-hmm. And then you got 
you said you got drafted in uh, what year was did, did you draft? I got drafted in the 2017 draft, fifth okay. round. Fifth round, you went to the Dolphins. What was that experience like? And I know we're going to dive into this. Uh, me and you have talked about it before. It was awesome, to be completely honest. My senior year of college, I didn't want to play. I was going through a lot of burnout, uh, a lot of mental health stuff where um, I was kind of having almost an identity crisis because I didn't know. I, I had a great junior year, but I had – uh, my longtime girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, high school sweethearts, you know, when, when I was, you know, getting engaged and then got married, I never really had a life outside of football. You know, like I never thought about life that wasn't football. And, and she was kind of that like inside peak behind the curtain of what there there's was so much more. So I kind of had an identity crisis because I always thought about like, if I'm not a football player, then who is Isaac Asiata, mm-hmm. you know, and. So I was happy that I got drafted. Very, very grateful and, and uh, uh, thankful to the, the Dolphins organization for trusting me. They drafted me in the fifth round. And um, I was at that time, I was kind of just rolling with it. Um, didn't really want to play football. Um, but to be honest, I was like, what else am I going to do? What else? I have a wife now. I, I got married my senior year of college. And when the season ended, I still didn't want to play. No, but I didn't know what else I was going to be able to do to provide. I The last job I had was when I was like 14 or 15 and I was sweeping popcorn at a local movie theater. You know, my resume, even when, my resume, when I applied for police, applied to be a police officer, they, they told me to leave out, you know, the NFL and college because they knew what it was already. And it was one job and it was that concessions guy, you know, way, way back and something years. So, so yeah, man, I I uh, got drafted in the spring of 2017 and went down to Miami with my wife. It's crazy because I I know that a lot of people look at sports players, you know, professional college, and they don't look at them as humans, right? Like they look at them as you know just these, you know, they're, they're the guy on TV, they're you know this player, and I could definitely understand and imagine like. You know, from 14 on, that's all you did was focus on football. And I could see how that can be grading on your your mental psyche and, like you said, your personal identity. And I went to school in Connecticut and I was um, was friends with a couple of people that were, like, into performing arts. Like, this one guy was a classical guitarist and he was a – and that's what he was going to school for. The the school I went to had a big performing arts uh, school and – by the start of his sophomore year, he had changed his major to like science or business or something. He goes, you know what? I never want to play the guitar again. Like it's totally ruined my, my love for this instrument and why I picked it up in the first place. So it's crazy. I mean, it's not crazy because I, I understand it, but I'm sure a lot of people were like, I never thought that you could burn out from playing football. Yeah. And, and I get it. Um, and, and guys in the NFL, um, they're human just like everybody else. Um, you know, we all go through emotions a lot, a lot more emotions than, than people think. And, and it gets brushed off because we're compensated with, you know, these high paying contracts for making really good money just to play a sport. But with that comes a lot of mental health and psyche issues. You know, you, you're constantly every day, you know, every day in the NFL, um, you're, you're basically waiting to find out if you're going to get let go. It's, it's very hard on you mentally, especially if you don't have a support system. If I didn't have my wife, um, I'm afraid of what would have happened to me because, uh, you know, and 
when we dive deeper in it, we'll talk about it. But even though I had my wife, it was still um, challenging to the point where I'd never really talked to my wife about, you know, how, how I was feeling and uh, where my mind was. And Mm -hmm. you go through all these emotions. And and like I said, um, not a lot of people really care, especially when you're making that kind of money. Uh, Fans don't really care. I mean, I won't say all of them, but you know, there's people out there that could care less Mm because you're getting paid to play a game. Um, and I get it. You know, I've been on both sides where I've been the guy who's like, why are all these guys getting paid this much money and they're complaining? And I've also been the guy who was complaining, you know, so it's it's a pretty unique perspective where um, I understand but humanizing and understanding that like just because we make, you know, there's multimillionaires out there who are businessmen and whatever you whatever it is, they're, they're going through things, too. And so sure. um, just the human side of it is is important. Yeah, you look at all the celebrities, you know, like the the mega celebrities that you really get into. Uh, one of the ones, you know, that just lost his battle uh, with his demons, Jason David Frank, you know, the Green Power Ranger. You know, he was one of my heroes growing up, you know, and it, he, he had money, you know, and he had what one would assume is everything in the world. And he obviously did not, you know, and, and that story goes that can be replicated, you know, look at, I shared a post today on Instagram of Robin Williams. Again, one of my favorite heroes of all time, you know, and to hear that he lost his battles to demons. I mean, and that just goes on and on. And you're right. They're celebrities and we look at them in a different light. And there are crass individuals that will say, well, they've got all this money that, well, how is that not happy? But you know, anybody with, with some sensibility will know that money obviously does not buy happiness and well being and things like that. Um, so to going back to your story, so we can kind of dive into this topic a little bit deeper. So you were already feeling this burnout and like the withdrawal of, of playing football and that being your life in your junior year. But then you, you, you did play your senior year. Yeah, I played my senior year and I'm glad that I did. Okay. So you got drafted by the dolphins now for a lot, again, going back to pure ignorance, like that whole drafting process, the combine, things like that. I mean, that's gotta be just a, remarkable experience just to go through what what was all that whole process from you know finishing college to to going in the nfl what was all that like like what was the the behind the scenes of that yeah so i um right when i got done our season ended in december and like the bowl game and then in january it was like straight into combine prep i got invited to the nfl combine uh me and my wife went out to san diego the carlsbad area and i was training for the nfl combine and you know, that's when you get all your 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 bench, your your forty times, your short shuttles. You do a bunch of position drills, so it's you know around the clock. You're like you're trying to you know get your body into the best shape to perform um, until the combine comes, and um, that was the most probably one of the most stressful um, things that I've been through um, because it's it's so it's so heavy on you because it's it's like the longest and probably one of the hardest interviews because um, you're interviewing from like your physique, like everybody's eyeballing you as soon as you get into the building. You know, it was in Indianapolis at the Colts stadium. And um, I, I was there for four days. And I think that in four days I slept a total of like five or six hours. Mm. It's, it's just around the clock. And they, they, I know they do that intentionally. Um, and, I'm going to say a lot of things about the combine. I'm very grateful that I got invited. Um, in no way am I saying that I took it for granted. It was very, very fortunate. And I was very blessed to be able to be 
a part of that and it was a great experience i wouldn't trade it for anything but it's um it's very degrading um in a sense that you you kind of get turned into like a piece of meat like Mm -hmm. um there's a there's a portion where you know you go you step on a scale like everybody's down in their like compression shorts you have nothing on but compression shorts and uh you go on you, you step on a scale and they read out your weight to a room it's like all the you know, general managers, head coaches, you know, some coordinators and just a room. There's a room full of uh, uh, NFL personnel, you know, and, and uh, you walk down this walkway. It's almost like a cattle show, man. Like, um, mm. you know, they, they they take your wingspan, your your hand um, width, and they read on all these numbers and you literally do a walk. You like walk out and walk back. You know, it's just like it's like stuff like that where – you don't really prepare for it. You really you get like dehumanizing. On. Yeah. Yeah. It, to be honest, it was, I, I understand uh, the means to the ends. You know, I, I understand what they're doing. It. It's it, there's that eyeball test. You know, they want to see, you know, how big this dude is in person and uh, what he looks like without his pads on. And um, I get it, you know, and it's a multi-billion dollar, you know, franchise. And so they have to be very, very uh, specific with things like this. So, like I said, I don't blame them. It is what it is. Um, but you, you are purposely like, there's, there's very, very little time for sleep. Um, you, there's a whole process where you have certain interviews at certain times with, uh, NFL teams, there's specific interviews. And then there's, they had this like big open room with different coaches and staff members where you sit at a table and you talk to them and those will go on to like three, four o'clock in the morning. Then you got a drug test at five. And then you're still rolling for the rest of the day. You know, you're doing all your like Madden headshots. You're doing all this cool stuff. Like it was awesome. Like it was an experience that I loved. Like it was fun, you know, and then, you know, but you're like deprived. Um, All the stuff that you see on TV, it's only a fraction of what goes on during those days. Um, Because the last day is the day that you do all your field work. And by that time, you've probably slept. Like I said, by the time I hit the field work, which I was the first one in my group, and we were the first group of the day. Um, I think that started at like 6 a.m. I think up until that time, I probably had slept probably like five or six hours in those four days. And yeah, it was a it was a different experience. It was one of those things where, you know, you're grateful because not a lot of people get invited to that, you know. And um, I was very honored and grateful that I got invited to go participate with that. You know, that's a story that I get to have and experience that I have that, you know, really nobody else has. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, you go through all that, you get to draft day. How, how, what was that like? That's really where my mental health and my uh, self doubt really started to take a hit. Um, in all the, the pre-draft predictions, I was like end of the end of the second round, early third round. Like I wasn't going to make it past the third round. I had a knee injury that I was kind of trying to keep secret. Like I said, it's one of those things where like the smallest thing will, will kill you on draft mm-hmm. day. And, um, I had this little knee injury because before the combine, I got a cortisone shot in my knee. Um, I had been dealing with some mild arthritis in my knee up until that point, and it all came out on draft day. I remember getting calls in the second and third round for, from guys saying, like, yeah, man, stay by your phone. We're going to call you. And it would start off like that, and then I'd get those same phone calls, people asking me about my knee and what was going on. Um, and what sucked is that I had, like, a big draft party for the um, – second day two, you know, I had my family over and my family, my wife's family, some friends just had a big party and 
round two and three came by and nothing, you know, it was the most, for me personally, it was like the, one of the most embarrassing things. And, um, I was so upset about that and going into the next day around four, you know, I, it was just me, my family, like my mom, my siblings, and, you know, a couple other people, not as many people as the day before. And the fourth round came and went and, uh, you know, I, I had, you know, I, I truly believed that I wasn't going to get drafted and it was still like so embarrassing. Like it was such a hard thing to deal with that like, you know, leading up to that point, I had a hundred percent confidence that I was going to be gone by the third round. And so I left me and my wife actually left. Uh, we were watching it at her house, her parents' house and we left and drove around and, um, you know, the, the fifth round started and it got, I got drafted like the middle to late of the fifth round. And I remember the beginning of the fifth round, like crying in, in, uh, in a room because I was like so devastated that, you know, I, I had accepted that I wasn't going to get drafted and I was still so embarrassed that I threw a big party for nothing. And, you know, my wife did a great job of, um, you know, trying to keep me cheered up and, but you know, it all, all that paid off. Um, they, I got my phone ring and <laughs> I actually denied it cause it showed up as a spam at first. And I was mm-hmm. just like, Oh my God, of course I'd get a spam call while I'm waiting for the most important call of my life. And they call me back. Um, the GM for the dolphins told me they're going to take me in the fifth round at 134 and changed my life forever, dude. It was one of the greatest, uh, things that have that I've ever been able to accomplish and say that I did, and yeah, I'll forever be grateful for them um, for that. That's awesome. So, so you get drafted. I mean, so obviously your your mental health up to that point had taken a dive. You know, you started you know really questioning everything. It sounds like you know, like you said, you put all your all your eggs in that basket, everything. But then you get that call. Did that like pick your spirits up? Like, oh man, here we go. This is this is game time. Like, yeah, we- yeah. I was like super, super motivated. Like, I hadn't felt that motivated in, in a long time, and I was like so excited to go and, and prove myself and to you know represent my family, my family's name, and uh, you know, and, and really start pushing and and enjoying the dream that I've had since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And what what was your NFL experience like? How'd that go? Um excuse my language, but it was absolute dog shit. Like it was, it was bad. I, I didn't take care of my mental health and I didn't really in, in return, like I didn't really take care of my body. Um, I didn't realize how bad the burnout was until, um, we started doing like OTAs, which is the off season practices. Those, those happen, you know, the beginning of the summer. And I just was not, like I, I didn't ever really feel like I was back in it for me personally, like growing up, uh, we were very, very poor growing up. And my mom worked multiple jobs just to make sure that we were fed and she did everything she could to take care of us. So when you go from that kind of environment, um, you know, to making 50, 60, $70,000 biweekly, um, you start enjoying the things that you've never got to enjoy. So I, I, because I was so burnt out on football and I wasn't performing, um, I started, you know, eating, you know, I was eating at restaurants. I was eating out. I was ordering takeout and, and I was kind of like, you know, like old linemen are big dudes. So I'm just going to be a bigger dude. And, you know, I got drafted at 323, And by the end of that season, I was like 340. And 
that wasn't helpful at all. Um, that it just continued to pile uh, because I wasn't performing. Um, in the were NFL. you eating as like a coping mechanism, like to deal with how you were yeah. feeling? Yeah, for sure. Like um, I didn't really realize how bad um, my mental health was until I remember I drove to the facility, like the night before I, a practice, like I get home, I think it was like eight o'clock at night and we had to be back at 6 a.m. the next day. And this is in season. And I wasn't used to that kind of schedule. And I, I, you know, I was not really getting any results or like rewards to like the hard work that I was really trying to put in. And so like, I remember talking to my wife and telling her, you know, it was, it got to like almost midnight and she's like, why are you still awake? And I said, if I go to sleep, like it just means as soon as I wake, you know, it's a faster track to having to wake up and go back. You know, it was so hard for me to not be home and to have to deal with going back and facing this. And I, I just hated it. Like the burnout had caught up. My mental health was in the dumps. And like that next morning, I remember sitting in the parking lot and I was crying because I was like so petrified. I just could not go into the facility because I just was not happy. But what I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but this is this is very it's resonating with me. So when you when you're saying your burnout and, and the way you're feeling, what was it that you were feeling? How was like, what was the burnout? Where was your mindset at? And what, you know, you said you had physical symptoms, I guess, feeling like, you know, like what did that feel like too? Yeah. I remember, I remember sitting in my truck, like, and just staring, there's a side door of the facility that everybody walks through every day. And I remember just, just crying. Like I, I could not, I was trying so hard to just open the door and just, you know, get back to it and just go back and keep, chipping away and, and whatever, but the, the burnout, like the mental, physical exhaustion of, uh, of football had taken its toll. And the guy, it's hard for me. Like the best way I can honestly describe it is like, I honestly was like frozen and I was petrified. I could not open my door. I couldn't get my hands off the steering wheel. And I was just crying because I, you know, on, on one coin, on one side of the coin, I'm living my dream. I'm, I'm doing what less than 1% of people get to do. And this is all I've ever wanted in my life. And, and I'm finally here. But at the same time, like I didn't want to be there, but mm-hmm. I, I felt like I couldn't not be because it kind of goes back to like, um, at the time I was, I was a people pleaser. Um, I knew that if I was to give up and quit that I would disappoint a lot of people and I would embarrass a lot of people, whatever. And th- these were like things that were floating in my head that like, um, you know, it was such a blessing to be there. Was that, that was that SRO that you had and what he said about, you know, your mom sacrificed this, this and this for you to get here. Was that in the back of your mind at all? Um, not from him specifically. It was just more that like uh, I had a goal to, you know, my whole life to retire my mom and get her the house and do all those things that, you know, NFL players get to do. And because I didn't get drafted high enough and uh, we had a baby on the way, you know, I had to take care of my wife and my my daughter who would be there shortly after Um, so I couldn't take care of my mom you know my mom was still working two jobs and I'm in the NFL and I'm making you know a lot of money but I also have a family I had to take care of and so I felt like I couldn't win because I couldn't win because I was I wasn't succeeding in the NFL things were not going the way that I had planned and and that I had worked hard for it's very very political in the NFL Um, you know I won't argue and say that I was the best option but um, that's for a whole nother time, mm-hmm. but it was, it was basically, I was stuck between a rock and a hard place because I didn't want to be there, but I didn't feel like I could actually leave. You know what I mean? And it's gotta be, I know. Cause this is, I mean, 
not in the NFL, but when, when I made the decision to leave law enforcement, this is very parallel with my story, but to reach a point where you no longer love the thing that you've loved for so long and, you know, coming to that realization, I mean, that, that hits you in the gut. That's a, that's a tough pill to like come to terms with. That was a hard one to accept because like I said, my junior year, like I loved football, but I was so burnt out in college. Um, I ended up coming back for my senior year, which I was happy for. That was really the last time that I loved football until I got signed with the bills. But when you become, when you go to the NFL, you know, everybody's different. Everybody handles things differently. Everybody sees things differently for me when football became a job and it became, you know, like your entire life, your entire livelihood hangs on the word of one guy and that stress that, that adds to it. I fell in, uh, you know, out of love really quick. Um, and it was hard for me to accept that, like, I didn't love what I was doing anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I felt like I couldn't leave because, you know, I'd worked so hard to get there. There was a lot of people counting on me. There was a lot of, uh, people I was trying to save myself from, uh, being a failure, you know, being that guy. And it was, you know, at the time I was like, what else am I going to do? Like I've right. never done anything else in my life. I got a football degree, which is a sociology degree, you know? <laughs> um, did you, um, did you have in your mind at any point that like people won't love me when I'm not the football guy? Yes. 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 Like that was one of the biggest things is that like, I would go from being, you know, this loved and beloved guy, you know, I had such a great reputation and I did so many great things and had a great career in college, um, you know, that I was Isaac, the football player. And if you remove the football player, I had no idea who that other guy was. And I had no idea, um, if people would even care about me anymore. A lot of guys in the NFL, when they leave, this is one of the hardest things for them is this identity crisis. So, you know, you've been this football player for your entire life. Who are you when it's gone? Mm-hmm. You know, and, I just didn't feel like I'd be accepted. I didn't feel like I'd be, you know, looked at the same or treated the same. And I didn't want to lose that. And, you know, but at the same time, I absolutely hated it. I didn't want to be there anymore. And I just felt stuck. What part of the NFL season were you when this was all starting to roll in? Was it in preseason training camp or was it during the season? It was during the season. I think we were in week eight or nine um, because the, the most frustrating thing was that um, I was on the active roster. So I was dressing for you know, just about every game or I was traveling for every game and I was preparing for every game, but I never got played. I don't know, you know, whatever happens in the politics of the front office in the NFL, it is what it is. They, you know, there was a lot of things like looking back now that I knew that if I would have um, kept my weight in check, if I would have, you know, done certain things more, uh, a lot of things that I take responsibility for why I wasn't playing. But there's also things that I know uh, were out of my control. Um, I didn't do a great job of handling the things that I could control until the next year. Obviously, the things like like your weight and things, that was all kind of a symptom of the bigger issue, which was the burnout and everything that you were dealing with. So as that season came to a close, what happened? My daughter. uh, My daughter was born in, in March of 2018, going into my second year, and everything changed. Uh, 2018 was probably the best year of football that I had played in a long time. I dropped, I think I got down to like 325-ish, between like 325 and 330. Um, and I stopped caring about the uncontrollables. 
I started, you know, taking care of myself and doing the extra work and doing the extra film study and uh, the extra work after practice. Um, and I had a hell of a year. You know, I had a great off season. I had a great training camp leading up to fall camp. And, you know, I, I felt personally and, and, I, and, you know, to the testament of all the guys who were around me, you know, they felt like I was uh, ready to play. Um, and I did too. You know, I was very, very happy and I was, um, I started getting those rewards that I didn't see my, my first year, my rookie year, uh, you know, and I was holding my own against some of the best. Um, a lot of guys who are killing it now, you know, grateful for the, you know, the competition and, and iron sharpens iron. Those guys got me right. And it all just got pulled from under me. I got cut after training camp and I had, you know, comparatively to some of the guys, and this is nothing against those guys. I, I had a better camp. I had a better year. And it all goes back to, you know, the things that you can't control in the front office. But I got cut. I got let go um, after fall camp in 2018. And it really, it absolutely devastated me, like worse than I have in my entire life. Because, you know, in my mind, you know, I was, I was meeting with a therapist at the time, working through a lot of my mental health stuff. Um, everything, all the boxes were checked off, you know, everything that I needed to take care of my weight, um, all the extra work, my mental health, things were going great. And, uh, I took a blow when they, when they called me up and they cut me, um, all of my confidence, everything was just gone again. You know, I was back to my rookie year all over again. And, uh, they signed me back to the practice squad and I was just done. Like I was done with football. I was done with caring anymore and I ended up you know gaining the weight back which was unfortunate because in week nine I got oh sorry week 10 I got activated back to the active roster and started dressing for games you know I could dress for the game against Green Bay was the first time I played and I played on the field goal unit that year and um, but I because I didn't take care of myself you know and, and kept myself ready for the opportunity I wasn't ready for it but then I still never saw any time you know, with the offense and, you know, my give a shit factor was gone. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I was completely tapped out of, of everything, you know, all the progress that I made on the field, off the field with my mental health. After I got cut, it was all just for nothing, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, really what, I mean, obviously you lived it. Did you feel as if the progress you made, was that like a, was that like a facade? Like, Hey, you made that progress. But then when it was all, when you got cut and everything went back, it was like, Oh, well, I really wasn't feeling that, but I was trying to hold this, this false flag up, trying to, trying to make myself feel better. Then it was taken away. I, I went reverted back to how you truly were feeling. I feel like it was almost like the best way I can describe it is that I felt like I had worked and, and, did so many things and gave so much time and effort and blood, sweat and tears into this, you know, the embodiment of what I was at the end of training camp in 2018. And then I got told that it wasn't good enough again, mm -hmm. you know, and then, and then all the, um, I wouldn't say it was a facade, uh, but it was almost like the floodgates, uh, the dam got broken and then the, the self doubt crept in and the, right. the things with, you know, you'll never be good enough. Um, you really don't want to do this. All these um, dark thoughts just started to creep back in. And that's really when I, I started getting really suicidal. Um, 
I never, I never tried. I was way too scared to, I didn't, I didn't ever want to lose my daughter, but I remember just about every day, you know, I'd be driving into work and be like, you know, it wouldn't be that bad if I drove into that pool and, you know, just little things like that would creep into my mind. And it was just, it honestly was like a war against myself daily. Um, after my confidence got shot down and, you know, I, I would compare it to for all the, well, you know, the Leos who watch this, you know, if you're working your whole career towards, you know, certain specialty or promotion and you feel like you're progressing to it, towards it and you're, and you're making strides just for somebody to tell you that you're not good enough for that position. You know, that's how, honestly, how I felt. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I can really resonate with this story for sure. Um, so you, you get to that point, you get, you know, you go, uh, practice squad, then you get activated. And then what happened at, after that? Where did, where did your story take you there? Um, I had, I still had this nagging knee deal. Um, and I ended up tearing my meniscus before the season ended. Um, I had some sur- I had a surgery to, to get it fixed um, at the end of the season. And at this point, like I was completely done. Like I didn't care. Like I was eating. Jeez, man, I probably was gaining like two or three pounds a day. I would guess because I, I got all the way up to almost two six, uh, 360 um, before we started uh, those off season practices. But I remember I hurt my back during one of our off season workouts and. And I went and met with a bunch of specialists who told me that it was it was just a muscle, you know, muscle uh, spasms, and told me all this, which you know, this, that, and the other. And uh, I still remember that I, I um, and I don't blame anybody for this. It is what it is. It happened the way it went down. I was told to be at the facility for rehab at a certain time, and I showed up at that time, and then I was told that. You know, I, I remember being in the uh, cafeteria. There's this guy we called him the Grim Reaper because you only saw him when somebody got cut. And he came down to the. It's funny because everybody's talking normal, joking around, getting ready for the day, and I'm in there getting breakfast. And like, he walks in the room, and everybody goes silent, and he like locked eyes with me immediately. And I was like, "Shit, yeah, it's, it's, now it's my time." And I got let go that day, and. I remember like being very, very emotional and upset because it was so up to that point, you know, um, the reality of, you know, what's in the dark of when you're done with football um, was so scary to me. It was so hard for me to fathom what that day would be like and, and how I would handle or how I would embrace transitioning out of football. And I had built this big monster out of, you know, getting cut and being told that I'm not on a team anymore. Um, I faced it in training camp, but I knew, you know, in 2018, but I knew I'd sign with another team. But when they cut me in 2019, I 100% thought that I was done. Like I was never going to get signed again. But I painted this picture of, of failure, uh, of what that failure would be. And um, I was so afraid of it. I was so afraid of the unknown and, and what's going to be next when I transition out, how I'm going to feed my, my wife and my daughter and how I'm going to provide. And um, Getting cut in 2019 was probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Um, I got let go, and I remember being at, I was staying at a, at a teammate's house at the time, and it wasn't what I made it out to be. Um, I had made this big monster out of the unknown, and I had leaned into what like the horrors of of being done playing ball was that when it was when it came um i was showered with love there was a lot of support 
a lot of people reaching out and, and motivating me and telling me that, uh, you know, like I'll get back with the team or, you know, I'll, I'll know what to do next. And, um, and it really wasn't what I thought it was going to be like. It was so relieving and so, um, almost therapeutic, um, to see that, you know, for years, all this self doubt and, and mental warfare, you know, it wasn't this big, scary monster that I thought it was going to be. And so I still, you know, I, I, didn't want anything to do with the NFL and I flew my wife out to come to Miami and uh, told her that I was done and she said that I wasn't nice so what what happened from there I mean the the support's great I mean that's I mean that's what keeps us afloat for sure and literally at some points keeps us alive but what was the next chapter of your story when she said that you weren't done yeah, I uh, I told my wife that I wanted to retire and that I was happy and that I wanted nothing to do with it. And, you know, she told me that she'd support me if that's what I wanted to do, but she told me that I would regret it. Um, she didn't want – my wife has been really great about supporting me and kind of just being the cheerleader on the sideline. And um, she said that if I wanted to be done, that I could be done. Um, but she told me that I would regret it later down the road if I didn't give it another shot. And uh, – I'm glad I did. I, I decided, you know, cause at that time, I think I was like 365 pushing pretty heavy, you know? And so I decided to, I got cut in May of 2019 and uh, my agent told me that I would need to get ready for and like get my back fixed and have everything ready to go, to go and do tryouts, uh, you know, workouts with other teams right before training camp. So I had, you know, a little under three months, and I decided to take care and square away everything, you know, my mental health. Um, I was meeting with the, with the team. So with Miami, they had this like, like mental coach. He basically helped you with your, he was more like for sports, but he was also, you know, a certified therapist. And I was working with him on, on uh, eradicating the self doubts and, and fixing you know, all these issues that I had in my mind. And then I, you know, I lost, I actually dropped down to like 284. Um, I lost over a hundred, almost a hundred pounds. Um, and you know, I was, I was getting my knee right. I was eating right. And my whole thing, um, because I said that if I was going to do it again, I was going to do it right. And I was going to make sure that there was no external factors, um, that would come into play when I would go back and play again. I ended up, uh, killing it at a workout with the Buffalo Bills and they signed me and that was like the that was probably the funnest time that I had in the NFL um, because it just felt like football like football back when you're a kid and um, their organization was you know outstanding they really cared about the players because when you go to the NFL um, I would say nine times out of ten they could care less for you as a person they could care less for you you know unless you're like the Tom Brady's of the world they could care less because you're a dime a dozen. Uh, but they, the Bills, they really, you know, I had a great coach, Bobby Johnson, who was a guy who I could tell cared, um, you know, their head coach and the whole organization, you know, it was all about the players and it felt like football again. And I was having the time of my life. I was having so much fun. Everything was clicking. You know, I was doing great. My weight was good. And so I was moving faster than I had in the NFL. I was getting around and my cardio was great. Everything was like perfect. It was picture perfect what I wanted to be in the NFL. I woke up one morning and 
I was super overwhelmed because I, I just felt like I could finally just let this go. You know, like I knew I didn't want to play. Um, I knew that I was still burnt out and I was able to finally be at peace with retiring and being done with football because I was complete. When I say complete burnout, like I loved it, but I felt like I was still doing it just because of external factors. You know, I wanted those paychecks for my wife and kids. I wanted to be the successful ball player, the hometown hero and um, the status of being an NFL player. And if it wasn't for that summer, I wouldn't have been able to retire with such peace. Like when I, when I made that phone call to my agent and I called my wife and told her that I was retiring, like I felt okay with it, you know, versus in May of 2019, I wasn't, you know, it was out of spite and uh, I was in a great place uh, mentally and, I was glad. I'm still happy with that decision. I don't regret it at all. That's that's important. I think a lot. You know what your what your wife said. You know back in 2019 when uh, when you said you were done then, and she's like, "Well, you're going to regret it." Um, I think that was good. You know, you, you ended up going through it, and and you ended it on your terms, and and things like that. And I think that that closure is really important. You know, I talked to some guys who on the law enforcement aspect and I'm sure it's probably the same in, in the NFL capacity, but like if you go out on an injury, right? Like if something happens, talking about what you were saying about your control versus not your control, you go out on an injury that you had nothing that you could do differently. You know, you just got hurt and you can't, you can't play or you can't be a law enforcement officer anymore. Um, that sticks with you. That sticks with you for a while. Cause it's the what ifs and things, you know, it's amounting, but for you to actually go out on your terms is that that's solid sense of closure um that i think makes the whole transition out of whatever realm that is so much easier yeah and i was you know i i wanted to back in when i got cut from miami i would have never retired like i I would have retired but it was because somebody else said that i couldn't do it anymore and i wanted to prove to myself and and really to my kids that i can tell them one day you know like it really knocked me down and, and i was at rock bottom um, in my career, you know, but I decided, you know, I wasn't going to let somebody else tell me that I couldn't do this anymore and that I couldn't play anymore. And so I was very proud of myself and very happy that I uh, spent the time working on myself and getting back to where, yeah, I got back on an NFL team, but I decided to step away because of me and I got to do it without anybody telling me that, um, I couldn't play anymore. Right. And you were at that point in such a better you place. You know, you said you dropped the weight, you were eating better, taking care of your mental health, the the nagging injuries, which I mean, those type of things play into your mental health, too. You know, um, if you have a back injury or whatever, I mean, you know, I'm just kind of reiterating, but, you know, you're not going to sleep right. You're not going to perform just daily functions right. And that all grinds at you, too. So when you made your decision to retire, and you're in a good place mentally, physically, all that. What happened then? Did you stay up in Buffalo? Did you move back out to Utah? And and what kind of went from there? Yeah, um, when I when I retired, we caught the first plane back to Utah. I had, you know, prior to we had just built a house uh, in Lehigh, and uh, I moved back. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, my whole mindset was, how am I going to maintain, you know, this lifestyle this uh 
with these NFL paychecks, you know? And mm-hmm. so my first thing, and I've always wanted to get into business and like real estate and sales. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a businessman. I'm going to be a salesman and I'm going to make, you know, all this money. And I, I got offered a job, but it would have been a desk job. And I knew that I would have hated it, but it was a six figure job. And, uh, you know, my wife, again, coming to the rescue, she reminded me, you know, she's like, Hey, you just, you just left a job that was making way more money because you knew you weren't going to be happy. Um, she's like, don't do that again. She's like, go find Isn't it something. amazing how our female counterparts or just our counterparts are always the voice of reason. Always. Yeah. Yeah. I owe a lot to my wife. She's been great. She's been supportive ever since we were in high school, you know? And so I, I ended up not taking that, that job and, you know, backtracking a little bit, you know, I was in the NFL when guys were kneeling during the anthem and, uh, and there was a lot of, you know, act, activist work going on and a lot of uh things were done and 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 law enforcement officers were getting treated horribly you know there was a lot of shootings that were going on and and, um, a lot of white on black police officer shootings and um you know i never kneeled um and the leos who watch this you can believe me or not but it was never anti-america it was never anti-cop it was, you know, the guys, and I, I was really good friends with those guys. And, it, you know, it's, when all that started, it was more of like, hey, there's a lot of um, unarmed black men being killed and nobody cares, you know. And, you know, becoming a cop, you learn these situations with, you know, with officer safety where, you know, that it is what it is. You know, it happened because of this. And it was a justified shoot. You know, versus, you know, you know, as well as I do and every other cop out there knows that there's a lot of things that are not justified. There's a lot of bad cops out there. But I knew that I knew I always knew when I was playing that it, it couldn't be all of them. You know, I remembered my school resource officer. I was like, no, man, like all the cops that I've had interactions with uh, throughout college, throughout the NFL, it never crossed my mind that they were all bad. You know what I mean? Right. And so when I was trying to find this thing that I loved, uh, something that I could love to do. I met a guy uh, who's one of my best friends uh, to this day who got me into law enforcement, you know, and I went on a ride along and I fell in love. Um, I knew that I could wake up every single day and enjoy doing this. And I knew um, that I, from being with the guys who were, were kneeling, um, uh, for me personally, if you're not going to take action and you're not going to do something to be, a difference in it, um, then you're just a whole lot of talk mm-hmm. uh, and you're not a, not a whole lot of bite, no, a lot of barking, no, no bite. You know, I saw this law enforcement thing as an opportunity to, I knew, I know what it's like, um, growing up in, the, in neighborhoods where, why you're afraid to see the cops, um, you know, why, uh, you get uncomfortable around cops. And then when I became a cop, I understood why you get uncomfortable in these situations where you go into these kind of neighborhoods, you go into these kind of houses and you go into these situations, but there's a disconnect on why each side is um, uncomfortable. And I, you know, I recognized that before I even applied to be a cop and I wanted to be, you know, somebody who was made that difference. You know, I, I knew I was never going to be, you know, who changes the world. But I knew that if in my interactions from my, you know, using my SRO growing up, you know, he didn't change the world, but he changed my whole life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, I wanted to be that for somebody else. I always knew that my calling 
in life was to serve people and to help others. And what better way than a police officer? And, you know, it comes down to, I think you worded it perfectly. Like you're not going to change the world, but you could change the world to one person. And, you know, at that, at the end of the day, that's more than enough. So to do it anytime after that is definitely great. So you've been, you've been on the road, obviously you said three years, you've gone through two departments or you're at your second department now. And now, you know, the opportunity to be an SRO is now coming to you. So now you're really going to get kind of f- full circle, which is just amazing. What about you? What about you personally? Where are you mentally? What are you doing to kind of keep that train going in a positive way? I mean, obviously it sounds like since you've made the switch, you've been on a, you know, uphill uh, trajectory. Things are just so going great, but how are things going with you and, and what are you doing to kind of keep that going? Yeah, I, uh, just like every cop out there, there's, once you become a police officer, you get desensitized to the harm and the the bad things that a person can do to another person. Cause when you're a civilian, you don't really think about that. You kind of just see the best in everybody and you expect everybody to be, you know, play nice and, um, you hear about these stories on the news and on TV and you're like, oh man, I can't even believe that would happen. But then you become a police officer. You're like, yeah, yeah, I can believe that it happens happened. every day. It happens every day. And so when you, um, there's so much trauma um, that occurs to a, a law enforcement officer. Um, I know people who listen to this, like there's a lot of trauma in your life. Um, you're not alone. And for me, like I went through the exact same thing. There was a lot of dead bodies a lot of dead babies, a lot of suicides, a lot of things that the average person can't even fathom. You know, they don't even know that this happens. And uh, I knew it was bad when, and I'm not going to go into detail, but I went on a call and then there was a, you know, it was in the news and then uh, people are talking about it and they're just like, man, I can't even imagine. And then, you know, all the dirty details, you know, you know, the ins and outs of everything that happened. And, um, you know, that really, really, um, cause I didn't, I didn't check on it. I didn't keep it in check. Like I did when I had, you know, really got my mental health, um, under wraps in 2019, but it just started to pile up the stress of the job, uh, seeing so much bad. It's so easy to get jaded, um, because then you just start seeing everything is, is, you know, bad. Everything is bad. Everything is evil. And, you don't ever really check in on yourself and see how you're doing. And, um, there was a point earlier in my career where, uh, a lot of things happened in a short period of time that, you know, I carried that with me for the last two years. Um, it honestly wasn't until this past weekend that I was finally able to let that, let that trauma go. Um, cause you always feel like you can do more. You always feel like, uh, you made, you made a mistake. You made the wrong turn. You, uh, could have done more you could have gotten there sooner you could have done this better and uh when you play those games as a as a police officer it it does you no good it's very very harmful to your psyche it's very traumatic to you where uh, you ultimately feel responsible for what happened to that person you know i felt like that for a very very long time and you know luckily for me i found that through my social media and just through reaching out and talking to people um how therapeutic it was for me to kind of normalize the stigma around men's mental health, uh, especially as a cop, man. Like mm-hmm. I knew it was bad in the NFL, uh, guys not wanting to talk about it, but cops, man, they, they, there's such a stigma and there's such a, uh, 
stereotype of you know if you're a police officer you, you know you got to be the man you got to mm-hmm. got to rub dirt in that shit and move on and and don't talk about it you know and, right that strong uh, silent type type of thing yeah and uh, I'm glad that I had the experience in the NFL that I did because even though you know those those hardships were hard and and you know everything afterwards was so hard. I never looked at it the same again. You know, I, I was talking about it. I was normalizing it. I was like, you know, look, Hey man, I'm, I talked to my buddies and be like, Hey dude, I'm not doing too good. You know, I would have those, those times where I'd cry to my buddies on patrol. I'd have those times where we'd talk those, you know, those hour long side by side car talks. And when you ride two man and you, you spill your, your guts out to another person. And it was very therapeutic for me. It was, I was able to make it through and, and, and push past those, uh, demons that you face where you, those calls that stay with you even after you check off duty, you know, and, and I never wanted to, I never wanted anybody, anybody else in law enforcement, anybody in any walk of life to feel like it was normal for a man to not feel his emotions, mm-hmm. to not talk about the shit that he's going through that's on his mind. Um, Cause it does nobody good. That facade of the, the, the silent, the strong silent type guy who doesn't talk about his emotions. And i I lived it and it's bullshit, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it actually robs you of your self-worth and it robs you of, you know, the person that you can be. And you know, I just feel like it should be normalized more, especially in law enforcement, you know? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, there's a couple of different things that I, I want to talk about with that. Like, you know, when you open up to someone, when you have that intimate moment, you know, we talk about, uh, intimacy and, and immediately people put their mind to sex, but it's, I mean, intimacy truly means like being open with another person. And when you're having an intimate moment with literally a brother or sister side by side or, or riding two man or whatever, you know, even just a, a phone call, the amount of trust that is built by having that conversation with someone telling them that, you know, I trust you to talk about this. Uh, I'm comfortable obviously to talk to you about this. That first off will will the bond that's created instantly when when you start opening that up is so important, you know, because obviously we're going to run into terrible situations together. Um, but if I can't trust you with a with a deep, dark secret of mine or like something that's really weighing me down, then, you know, where where does that trust really lie? So I think that by ha- being able to have these conversations with someone so openly and obviously someone that, you know, you put a lot of faith and trust into um, just fortifies your relationship. To me, it always felt like, you know, now we can just perform that much better because there, there is nothing hidden. And that's the other thing is like, when you carry around this baggage, whatever it is, whatever's holding you back and you look at the people in your life, you know, people that you love, you know, your, your wife or whoever that might be to you, they don't know what's going on, you know, and, and, you know, talk about having these intrusive thoughts, these negative thoughts, you know, not even quite, you know, suicidal ideation, but they don't know anything about it. And you're fighting this war and it's going on and on. And you're trying to act like the, you know, the happy guy out on the outside. I mean, that just weighs you down even more by not talking about it to these people. Yeah. One of the hardest things for cops is that there you have your friends that are not cops. You have your longtime buddies from high school. You have your family members. They will never understand truly. Um, even your spouse. Like I, I know that my wife has a hard time because all she ever wants to do is help me, but none of those people will truly understand exactly what you're going through. 
the way other cops will. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're not able to open up and discuss, you know, how you feel with somebody who like the only people who understand really, you know, that's one of the hardest things I I see a lot of guys and a lot of uh, women going through in law enforcement is because they can't, they feel like they can't share those things. Um, You know, how can you tell, you know, everybody that in your department, you have the guys you associate with, you know, you'll say hi to, but then you have your brothers, you know, you have your circle, brothers and sisters that are in that circle. And how can you tell that person you love them, but you're not willing to listen to them. Mm-hmm. You're not willing to let them open up and tell you those things. Or, you know, you can say that, you know, in a firefight, I trust this dude with my life, you know, but when you're in the firefight for your life, uh, mentally, uh, you don't trust that person to be able to feel like you can open up to them. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, so, it's a, it's a very tough and big pill to swallow that, you know, conversations like this going out towards masses and hopefully resonating with people will create a ripple effect because I feel like it's so important. It'll, it literally saves lives. And, you know, first off, first and foremost, I want to thank you for sharing everything you've done up to this point. I mean, this is, uh, it's significant because I feel like you're right in a, in a role model kind of way, like you've had this different experience and people need to hear these types of stories. I, I kind of, roll my eyes at people who get platforms and, you know, say, Oh, you know, I've never had a mental health crisis, not even a crisis, but you know, like, Oh, my health, my mental health is fine. It's not a thing. Like we need to normalize these conversations. Like everybody in this profession, one point or another has taken a call home. Like it's, it's going to happen. And you know, you could be the most um, stoic individual is you're still going to take something home. And, I think it's important to normalize conversations like these. Yeah, man. And like, I never thought, cause I like on my platform, on my Instagram, you know, I'm almost at 20 K and, but it's really not that big. Like I, I uh, never thought that I would be, um, an advocate almost for men's mental health. Um, when I went public with, uh, why I retired and, and, you know, the big things that the, the mental health pieces that, that came into that played into me retiring. And then, you know, all the hardships that I faced in the NFL when I retired and I was so open about it, the amount of guys who were playing in the NFL uh, who reached out to me and, and told me that they feel the exact same way. And, and mm-hmm. to this day, you know, I still talk to current players, former players, um, you know, a bunch of diff- just different people who share that, you know, they're going through these certain things and they don't feel like they can talk to it with anybody. And, um, you know, being able to, to find that, that inner strength, you can be the strongest dude, uh, physically and, and whatever at your job. And you can be that SWAT commander, whoever it is you want to be, you know, that, that tough cop guy, but that, that doesn't mean anything. If you can't take care of yourself, like this, you find that guys are having such hard times with, facing their their demons and facing the hardships that they do so instead of talking about it they turn to all these horrible things you know they turn to to, to drugs sex alcohol um more work you know thinking that it'll cure it but it never does it never has and it never will and the challenge i would have is is to reach out to that you know that close brother that you care for and that you're close with and and you have that conversation whatever it is on your mind and you know, it's got to be done in a, in a space where there is no judgment. You know, I've, I've had so many deep and, and personal, those intimate conversations with 
with my battle buddies and, and the guys at work. And all it ever did was fortify and strengthen our, you know, our, our bond uh, mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, I'm still really, really close to the guys in my old department. But it, it takes you understanding that. I think one of the most important things is understanding that you're not alone in it. You know, for the longest time, especially in the NFL, I always felt like it was just me. Like I was the only one and it wasn't a pity thing. It was, it was more just like nobody else is feeling this way uh, kind of thing. You know, I felt so isolated and so alone because everybody carries on that, that poker face of that. Everything's fine. You know what I mean? And it's the same thing on the job. You know, you, you, you check 10, eight and everybody's fine. They're ready to roll and everybody's ready to go get in the shit and, 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 uh, you know, be the heroes. But everybody, every single one of those those people, uh, they're dealing with something, uh, something that's personal, something that's specific to them. And um, understanding that you're not the only one who's going through this and that you don't have to be the only one who's going through this. That's that's probably one of the most important things is realizing and accepting that, like, you're not alone in this. Mm-hmm. A lot of the guys that I've talked to who have reached out to me, you know, they felt, and this isn't, you know, for me as a, pat on the back but they felt like they were alone until they read something that i posted on my instagram yeah. you know and and i refuse to let dudes let you know i'm very vocal about you know if you don't have anybody else if you feel like you don't have anybody else i'm i'm here you know yeah. I, you can reach out in any form that you need to and i'll listen you know yeah i i absolutely 100 percent agree with that and that's one of the things that the Shocking thing that I wasn't expecting from my Instagram and and what I've been able to do, you know, I I started as just silly pictures on the internet, you know, and then I was able to kind of transform it and add this, this layer and to the point where it's become more of a focus to me than anything else. I mean, the, the memes still kind of, there's still the engine that drives the car, but we got a different destination now. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And that idea of looking at everybody and going, you know, they're dealing with something too, whether they're comfortable talking about it or they have talked about it or not. That's, that's an important thing. And to, uh, open yourself up to those conversations is huge. So definitely want to commend you for that. Uh, Isaac, I, I appreciate this whole story. Um, everything we're going to get ready to wrap up. I do have some listener questions that I want to go through real quick and then, uh, and then we'll go from there. All right, here we go. What was the largest way football translated into law enforcement? I was very, very blessed, and I, I preach this to all offensive linemen um, who play football at any level. The job of an offensive lineman is the protector. Your whole job is to protect the quarterback, whoever the ball carrier is. That's your whole job. And working as a team, in, a, in an O-line, you have five guys who have to do their job perfectly if one person fails that job then ultimately the whole line failed so the two big things is being able to work as a team as well as being that protector um any offensive lineman who's played at any level understands the importance of um you know keeping the quarterback clean uh keeping him safe making sure he doesn't get hit um those transition into law enforcement to where you know instead of i have one guy i have a whole city you know i have my fellow officers i have anybody that i'm on a call on keeping them safe making sure that they're taken care of but also being able to work in tandem in a team where you know especially during firefights where you got to trust uh, you know the guy on the left and the right you know if one of them slips up somebody's not going home and uh, 
there was there was there's so many more values that dive into that but i i think for an offensive lineman um it's literally the same thing but now you have a gun and you're protecting an entire city mm-hmm. you know it's there's a lot of values and and things that you can really peel the layers back to what an offensive lineman is but it transitions over to law enforcement so well what is the biggest lie about the nfl versus what's the biggest lie about law enforcement um, I think the biggest lie about the NFL is that we talked about it earlier in the show. It's a bunch of pampered guys who get paid millions of dollars to play sport. You know, it is, you know, they do get compensated. They do get paid very well, but they're human. Just like you are at your job. I mean, I remember sitting in a break room watching football and just listening to guys just like berate and tear apart <laughs> these players, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, some of them are guys that I knew. You know, they're great husbands, they're great fathers, they're great people to society. Uh, but because they make a bigger paycheck than you, then they're less than, you know, mm-hmm, it's almost mm-hmm. like, I mean, cops were all, were always salty about everything, you know, and which is, you know, I, I understand now because I make those paychecks, you know, so mm-hmm. I get it, you know, I understand, but like, you know, the dehumanization of these athletes is horrible. Yeah. Know? There are there are some shitty dudes in the NFL and, and shitty guys just like anywhere else in any occupation. And uh, the biggest lie about law enforcement is that they, I mean, there's so many different parts to this, but that they're, you know, these guys who just want to ruin your day or, you know, they racially profile you or they do this, that, and the other just because they're the cops and they want to jam you up. And uh, one of my favorite things about being a cop is really seeing guys who care about the individuals that they're serving that go the extra mile. You know, they, you know, I've watched guys spend their own money, thousands of dollars over years, uh, putting, you know, people in hotels when they can, or, you know, in a DV situation where they have nowhere else to go, taking them to a hotel and putting them up for, you know, a week, mm-hmm. you know, there's so, mm-hmm. there's so much compassion and there's so much love. And, and it goes just right back to the people who are not law enforcement officers. They dehumanize them. You know, they, associate them with the bad uh that they see because uh, if we're all going to be honest and we're all going to look at ourselves we we know that there are bad cops in law enforcement everywhere sure. Sure. Uh, but just because those bad cops exist doesn't mean that the good ones don't and you know it, it really it gets upsetting to me when i get labeled um, as a bad cop and these people don't even know the things that i've done the the, the things that i do for others and it's for no other reason that we just want to be there to help you mm-hmm. know the genuine heart of a law enforcement officer is is very very hard to find i agree completely uh next question we kind of touched on but I'll, I'll pose it to you anyway uh why policing considering you could have had so many options after the nfl well uh, like i said I, and i'm big on doing something that you love and look forward to every day uh, there is no reason you know, I could have been offered a million dollar job, probably would have taken it, but I would have hated it. You know, I, I know that if I didn't truly love that job and even though I knew a funny story, I remember I got paid the last paycheck I got from the NFL was for like, I think it was like 95,000 biweekly was what I was mm-hmm. making. And then I got my first check when I became a cop and it was like 1400 bucks. <laughs> it was like the most depressing, the most, you know, and I was Talk like, what humbling. did I do? Yeah. You know, I was like, what did I do? Like, um, but it didn't compare to, you know, the, the interactions that you get to have and the impact you get to have on people's lives and the good that you know that you do that nobody else will ever know. You know, if, if you truly are, you know, this 
this hero and this uh, first responder, this guy who who takes care of the, the public, truly to the core of what protect and serve means. Uh, the money don't matter, mm-hmm. you know. Right. It does, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things. When you're trying to take care of your family, yeah, sure. But you didn't take this job for the money. You knew the shitty pay you were going to get. <laughs> but you understand, you know. Don't ever forget why you took this job. Uh, next one: Is there a similar approach to exercise and recovery between being a pro athlete and being law enforcement? Um, uh, to be honest, I think for me as a law enforcement officer, there's not much. Uh, when it comes to recovery as, as in regard to like my body other than sleep, like especially those grave guys out there, like sleeping is probably the most recovery that you'll ever have, uh, sleep and taking care of your mental health. You know, I, I, I tried to apply the principles that I did when I would do rehab on my like knee, my back and, you know, the ice and, and heat compression, all these different things. And, I try to like flip it to where, you know, the same care that I was taking on my body because, you know, I get it. Like our backs get jacked up and, and, you know, you can go get a massage, you can go cold tub, whatever you have, but, you know, sleeping and uh, making sure that you're recovering mentally where when you're away from the job, you're away from the job. And uh, you, it's hard to say you can't carry homework with you. Um, a lot of guys do a great job of, you know, kind of checking the badge when they when they they check off duty. But truly being able to step away from the job for yourself mentally and, and making sure you know, I'm sure everybody's read that uh, the was it the survival guide for law enforcement that book yeah. it talks it talks about you know your you get so much of an adrenaline dump to when you have to yeah right there the emotional survival guide there you go. Yep. Um, it's real. The uh, constant adrenaline, the constant drive, excitement of the job. And then you come home and then you got to do life. You know, you got to be a dad. You got to be a husband. You got to, you know, some of you don't come home to anything, you know, and you get those cortisol uh, dumps in your body and uh, making sure that you're balancing, you know, those adrenaline dumps and the excitement of your job to something at home that keeps you, you know, focused and, and grounded. So mental health days are not bad. The next one kind of off the back end of that, but it says, what's your favorite workouts or skills from football that directly impact law enforcement? Um, deadlifts, nothing like dead, deadlifting a, a guy in cuffs, um, <laughs> up to his feet. Uh, no, like I, my fast twitch and my, my like reaction time. And especially when it comes to shooting, uh, like off the draw, um, like I, I, I really enjoy going out and shooting and working on my draw and, and uh, my target acquisition, my breathing. Man, there's so many different things that uh, translated from from football and sports into the law enforcement career. It's not just the running and and tackling and and fighting, and whatever. You know, it's a lot of the, the. It seems like the micro movements, like the smaller things. Yeah. That yeah, a lot of my like muscle memory and my mind is just a lot sharper. Um, I'm able to process and multitask and do all these different things that I, I see other officers struggle with, and that's okay. You know, it is what it is. Uh, I was just blessed with a different path to it. Next one we got, how can law enforcement recruit more football players to become cops? 
I'll, I'll be honest. I, I had that same question. I'm like, man, we should get more like football players and, and like athletes to, cause they, you know, they, um, are able to deal with these high amounts of stress and they're able to do, um, all these things, uh, very well as compared to somebody who's, you know, 21 years old and they, uh, you know, they're, you know, they just got done with a semester in college and that's not a knock. Like if that was your path, it was your path. I bet you're a great cop. Um, but really I feel like the call to law enforcement is a big, it's a, it's a real sure. thing. You know, I talk to buddies in the NFL all the time where they talk about wanting to be cops and, you know, I had a buddy who his whole life, he wanted to be a cop. And then when it came down to it, he just couldn't come to terms with the fact that he could, he would die, you know? there's a certain level of, of the call to law enforcement that, that comes into play where it doesn't call to everybody, you know, they would be great at that job, but, uh, to that person, it's just not what they would want or, um, they feel like they would die for. All right. So the next one I got, okay, we'll do this one and then we'll hit the two other ones. Um, how do you feel about kneeling on football fields, having played, you kind of touched on this, having played and now also being law enforcement? Yeah, like I said, there was a lot of misconception, and then you know it, it got taken to the extreme, especially in 2020 with everything that happened in Minnesota. Uh, but being there and being with those guys, I can honestly tell you that they didn't ever hate cops. It wasn't because you know it wasn't a, an fu to the police or to to military. It was that they saw a problem that nobody was talking about, and this was the only way that they could raise awareness towards it. You know, I. I I had a really good friend when I was down in Miami. His name was Kenny Stills, great wide receiver. He's still playing, who loved cops so much so that all of his off times, you know, his off days, he was spent doing ride-alongs down in Miami-Dade. And, uh, you know, he was working with the communities and kind of trying to be that bridge um, as a NFL player. And um, it was never what people thought it was. And even, you know, to this day when I tell people that, a lot of cops still won't accept it. And, you know, if, you, if you're not okay with it, then it is what it is. But I'm telling you firsthand that it was never, you know, anti-military, anti-America, anti-law enforcement. All right, man. This has been an absolutely amazing conversation. Um, I, I just want to thank you again for your time and your insight. We're going to have to circle back and have a have a conversation in the future because this, is, this has been great. So, again, I want to thank you for your time. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I, I my computer sure. was acting weird. Um, so we're gonna uh, wrap up. I've got this last little set of questions. I call the mental minute, um, and I'm gonna hit smack my microphone too. I guess um, before we dive into that, if people want to get in contact with you, if they want to follow you on social media, anything like that, how do they find you? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, my Instagram is probably the best way to get a hold of me. It's at Asiata, F I V E, the number four. So A-S-I-A-T-A, F-I-V-E, and then the number four. Awesome. We're going to make sure we'll, we'll tag you to the post. So the mental minute is just kind of um, questions to make you think, and uh, we'll see how it goes from there. Here we go. What's the best book you've read recently? Um, Extreme Ownership and then David Goggins' uh, book, too. Those were really great books. Okay, perfect. I got Extreme Ownership up here also on the shelf. What is something you do to ground yourself? Um, right now I do a lot of self-reflecting, uh, I do a lot of breath work. I do a lot of, I spend a lot more time, uh, kind of just taking a self inventory of where I'm at, uh, what I, you know, where I'm at, uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, 
kind of gauge that against like how I feel I am as a father and a husband. So just kind of taking that mental inventory of everything. Very, very good. Very important. What is something you do for self care? Uh, geez, man, <laughs> I'm very basic. I'll play video games. I feel like that's like my alone time. I, uh, I enjoy cold, cold plunges and, and, uh, working out and hot tub or in the hot sauna, stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm like, I'm on the, I'm on the edge of taking the cold plunge for the first time. I've been looking at it, researching it, trying to find a place to go do it. I might just put some ice in my bathtub and just do it at home. Yeah, just go to an IFA, bro, and just fill up a tub and leave it out overnight. Could there you go. go. Would you open an envelope with your death date written on the inside? Um, no. Okay. I, I think, um, especially as cops, I feel like if you're in this profession, there's a certain level of acceptance to death. You know, every day, every day you, you check on the radio and you check 10-8 and you uh, drive into work, you've almost shook hands with the Grim Reaper and you told him that, like, I've accepted that it might be today, but I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure it's not. And the last thing I want to know is to have that day in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Would you be friends with yourself? With myself now? I mean, yeah. Uh, it's It just depends. I'm working on a better version of myself. I know I want to be friends with that guy for sure. Okay, I like that. In your in your eyes, who is that person? Um, oh man. Or describe that person. Um, that person's a better husband. Person's a better father. Um, that person is uh, somebody who can let go of uh, the barriers and the limits that he placed on himself years ago, um, and accepted and settled for the mediocrity of what he was doing. Um, I think I'm a great person now, but I know that there's so much more and so much better that I could be. Nice. I like that. What do you want from other people? Yeah, that's a deep question. Um, honestly, I'm at a point in my life where I just want people to to win, to just be successful in whatever it is that they um, imagine that to be. It takes very different forms, and everybody it's unique, but I genuinely enjoy watching people pursue to be better and to uh, whatever image it is in their head of who they want to be or they want to be like I just want them to push to be that person you know I especially the last year or so I've really really done a lot of self-reflecting where there's a lot of mediocrity that I've accepted that everybody does and I feel like if you can always be better and you can always push to be better and why not do that? What sort of impact are you looking to make and how do you make it? Um, right now specifically, that's why I'm going to schools is I know that there's a lot of kids that come from a lot of different backgrounds that have a, a lot of different opinions about life and about law enforcement and about relationships. And, you know, I think as police officers, there's a, a, a special, um, dynamic between our relationship with the public where right now we're not doing too hot um, in the public eye um, but being able to show that person that you're human and that you go through the same things that they do especially young kids um, the impact that you can have on their lives and kind of point them in the right direction uh, you don't have to hold their hand to do that but you know somebody that they can respect who there's there's a certain uh, paradigm shift of when you hate somebody 
or when you think negatively of somebody, but then you find out who they really are, the respect that is gained. Um, you're almost humbled to where, you know, when it comes to law enforcement, there's a lot of people who hate us. And I know a lot of people have experienced that time where it started off heated because they didn't like you. And then they got to know you, not you, the officer, you as a person. And it's a whole different story. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the kind of impact that I want to have is, you know, showing people and humanizing people no matter what walk of life they're in. How do you define the word friendship? Damn, man, you're just rolling off the press with these hot oh, questions. Mm-hmm. Thought about <laughs> um, uh, for me, I've always, you know, especially growing up, I didn't really have any friends. Um, wasn't the popular kid, even though I played football. Um, I think it's just somebody who genuinely cares about you, the hardships that you're facing. Uh, they want you to succeed. They want to help you and be there for you when it's hard. Any anybody can be there for somebody, but you know those, those guys who uh, drop everything that they're doing, or they're there at three in the morning, or they're uh, checking in on you. Uh, those are those are friends. You know, you have associates and friends, and they're the person that you can count on to be there for you, to pick up the phone, to make the drive, to do all those things that you can rely on that person. I think that's what a friend is. I mean, that bleeds really deep into almost being a brother. So Mm -hmm. how do you define the word happy and what makes you happy to me right now? um, I describe that as self-love being able to love you and looking in the mirror and you love that person back. It's not an easy thing to do. Everybody, you look at yourself every morning when you brush your teeth and you get ready for the day. Um, But, you know, how many of us look at that person, we hate that person. Um, took me a long time to love that person. And that's really what made me, uh, can truly make me happy. Uh, because I know that person, if I love them, then they're doing everything that they can to take care of the things and people in their life. And the last question I got for you tonight, what is the meaning of life? Um, you caught me at a weird time where I'm like changing a lot of things in my life. Um, I don't think that we're here to just exist. I don't think we're here to just, you know, work the nine to five and to um, accept the hands that we're dealt. I think we're here to challenge ourselves. That we're here to uh, reach our full potential in whatever capacity that may be, whatever occupation that can be. I think the meaning of life to me is uh, leaving something that outlasts my life. You know, that when people talk about me, and it has nothing to do with like the vanity of it, of like, you know, just the, the pride of me and my name. It's just that when I die, I want people to remember me as somebody who cared about them. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather people remember me um, because of the way I made them feel versus the things that I, you know, the things that I did as an mm-hmm. NFL player. You know, I'd love for people to talk about, you know, he made me feel good about myself or he made me feel important or whatever that is. Versus like, you know, he did this for me. Um, I think the impact you have on people's lives that outweigh you, that's the whole purpose of life is to leave something behind that means something. You know, not just me as the NFL player. I hope people remember me as somebody who generally cared about them. Nice. I fully agree. Isaac, this was an amazing conversation. Um, Like I said before, and I'll say it again, you know, there are many parallels between me, my personal life, my struggles and your story as well. So that really resonated. And if two people are having these parallel feelings and conversations and stories, 
who knows how many el- how many other people are feeling the same way and now this conversation might have dug up something for him so i really appreciate your time and your your um willingness to talk to me about this yeah man thanks for having me and if i can like last thing before we go off like yeah if you're listening to this and you're struggling like especially with the you know the mental health side of things that we talked about um i might not know you but that doesn't mean that i can't listen and empathize and, and try to figure something out with you so don't hesitate to reach out to me i'm really good at checking my dms and you know talking to people who don't follow me or i don't follow and you know, anybody who reaches out to me with a problem um, if you don't feel safe um, or you don't feel like you can talk to people in your life i promise you can talk to me i mean i'm not as intimidating as i look and as intimidating as instagram page looks um really open guy really you know, able to like people be vulnerable and talk about these things. So it's okay to feel that way. You're, you're okay to feel the way that you feel in your head and, and your heart. Just talk about it. And if you can't talk to anybody else, you can talk to me. I promise. Awesome. Awesome. And that's, that's a great resource to have. So I appreciate you sharing that as well. Everyone listening, stay tuned. We'll wrap this up. Thanks a lot, man. It takes a big person to comfortably talk about their struggles, their fall, the whole process. It's a story that I am only now getting comfortable talking about. It's something that has taken a lot of time for me to work through, the how and the why. And even so, I don't believe that I've truly unlocked it all. But let's talk conceptually about burnout once again, because I feel like we are experiencing it tenfold in law enforcement. As a matter of fact, I know we are because the numbers are there. The New York Post reports that 3,700 police officers retired or resigned from the NYPD in 2022. That's the largest law enforcement agency in the world, and 3,700 of their police officers left. And this is only one agency, but this story is everywhere. Staffing is abysmal all along All the lines of public safety, response times, and crime rates continue to climb because of it. Back in November, episode 37, for anybody paying attention, I had Dina Kale on, therapist from California, and the topic was burnout and how to deal with it. So if you're interested and you haven't heard it already, go check it out. Again, episode 37. This is not new, guys. This is not a new concept, a new issue. In a 1982 magazine article titled, No one can imagine what the costs really are. In the article, it outlines the idea of police burnout and describes someone that would suffer from it as someone who was originally enthusiastic about the job and begins to respond to the frustrations of police work in such ways as resenting superiors, drinking too much while off-duty, experiencing problems at home, and ceasing to take initiative on the job. That's 1982. If I didn't tell you that, and I'd say, hey, do you identify with this? How many of you would raise your hand? And the slippery slope just got worse. I started the police academy at the end of August 2014. Do you know what happened on August 9th, 2014? Ferguson, Missouri. Michael Brown. Do you know what happened on July 17th, 2014? Eric Garner. New York City. 
Those two incidents set the tone for my career. I graduated the academy in 2015. For the next six and a half years, I worked in the inner city, running and gunning and having a badass time. But aside from all those great stories and memories that I have, and I can tell them until I'm blue in the face, I also watched cases get dropped over bullshit, violent felony offenders get released on technicalities, loopholes, and just because the judge felt like they should, and, and, and even worse, I witnessed a man get arrested in March 2018 for four counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, as well as six counts of possession of a firearm and ammunition by a convicted felon. In November 2018, this same man was out on the streets again and shot one of my police brothers in the arm. He's, he ended up making a full recovery, but he shouldn't have been out there in the first place. In 2021, a man with previous arrest for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, improper exhibition of a dangerous weapon, and aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, charges all of which were pled down or dropped, shot and ultimately killed my friend and my brother. Months after that, another friend, another brother, took his own life after his battles and demons following the previously mentioned incident. Then there was me. On day one of a brand new 30-year career, I made the decision to leave what I had and go across state, starting it all over because I decided to move in with my girlfriend and her daughter and build a life together. And that's what was waiting for me, risking my life to arrest scumbags that were just going to get out and beat the charges. I would literally sit in the parking lot before work, just like Isaac, and physically have pains over going into the department to train and learn or relearn or whatever you want to say. Now, at the time when I felt those pains, I thought my body was just all out of whack. Only now do I realize that the stress from the burnout was literally eating me alive. I remember one time driving home from training and my body was so tight and sore, I couldn't move my neck while I was driving. In 2023, police officers have more to lose than anyone you put into handcuffs. So to me, it wasn't worth it anymore. I burnt myself to a crisp. Okay, I worked endless overtime. I wore it like a badge of honor. We're going to talk about that next week. But I burnt myself to a curse. The mental anguish over losing those friends over bullshit. And then I moved my life to start over. Literally to do it all over again. Actually worse. I was, I was six years in to a 25 year career. And we just got our pension moved to 20 years. So really, I was, what, 14 years into my career? Or I had 14 years left, and I started all over to start day one of 30? No, no. I made the decision to move and start a new life. And I decided that I was going to be around for it. This episode is called Law Enforcement Saved My Life. And I don't want my personal story and the the drawbacks and everything that I dealt with to deter anyone looking into law enforcement or encourage people to leave the job. I just think the highlights, right, the the fights, the the, the pursuits, the, the fun stuff, definitely outshines the lowlights, and I think they need to be talked about a little bit more because things that I wasn't expecting. There are plenty of people that still understand the amazing amount of sacrifice that comes with this job, and they still put it on the line every single day. And you guys are the true heroes, and I will always raise my glass to you. And I know you're listening, and you guys do great jobs. You show me the things you do. And I do appreciate you. And just know, as the burn comes in, um, I get it. You can always reach out to me. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, this week's supplemental report, this week's bonus content, our call-in episode, will follow this one. I'll have it out later this afternoon. I have a call-in from a former hose dragger out in the Midwest. Just hold on a second. She's going to talk about her experience with, with burnout and how she found a new lease on life, a true true turnaround story. She was burnt out, didn't love it anymore, and, and it's, it's a great story, so you're going to want to listen to it. Listen, folks, the point of this episode was, one, to share Isaac's amazing story, but two, to show that burnout happens across all career paths, even dream professions like playing in the NFL. What kid didn't dream of being a sports star, a rock star, a movie star? Shit, I dreamt of all three, and as recently as like 10 years ago. And I've actually talked to people in all three of those career paths, and sometimes it ain't all it's cracked up to be. Uh, just for an example, go check out episode 131. My environment is a product of me with Jeff Bosley. He's a former hose dragger as well. He turned Hollywood actor. And I've been following him since that episode and a little bit before. And the Hollywood life is far from all glitz and glamour. Irregardless of what you do for a living, you need to live. You need to enjoy it. And if being a cop fills your cup, then hell fucking yeah. But we here at 108 Entertainment are going to keep providing you ways to live your best life and get the most out of it. And that's it for today's episode, folks. It's an important one. I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope you kind of put a little bit in your in your brain and uh, and thought about it, okay? Next week, we have Jason Lacayo from New York. He's going to come and talk to you. He is the real Jumpman Jay. We're going to talk about his long career as a cop in the Empire State, how the job has changed, and how to survive this job. It's a great one as well. And again, a lot of great insight Lots of years of experience there. He's a great guy. I love these guys from New York, you know, that I keep talking to. You know, they get the they got the bacon, egg, and cheese, uh, salt, pepper, ketchup. It's great. Uh, so you're definitely going to want to check it out. And also, like I said, check back later today for our supplemental report, the bonus content, where we have uh, Brooke from the Midwest. She's going to break it down about how she had burnout as well. If you don't already, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Choose Social, and your sister's ass. Recommend this episode to your friends. Check out the merch store. We will see you next week. Take care of each other. Stay safe. 10-8. Out.